Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. On today's episode, I will be speaking with neuroscientist Colin Ellard, whose work is at the intersection of psychology, architecture, and urban design. Through his research, Ellard reveals how our surroundings directly impact our psychological well-being, offering a unique perspective on how we can create more harmonious and engaging environments for our communities. I believe he will also shed light on the profound connections between our brains and the spaces that we inhabit. But before beginning the conversation, I would like to tell you a little bit more about my guest. Colin Ellard is a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Waterloo in Canada and director of its Urban Realities Laboratory, where he works at the intersection of urban design and experimental psychology. He also partners with architects, museums, and other NGOs on projects to enrich public debate about the built environment. Beyond his research and teachings, Ellard is the author of Places of the Heart, The Psychogeography of Everyday Life, and Where Am I? Why Can We Find Our Way to the Moon But Get Lost in the Mall? Colin, thank you for joining On Cities. It is a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Hi, Carrie. Thank you for inviting me. So, Colin, the opening pages of your wonderful book, Places of the Heart, The Psychogeography of Everyday Life, recounts your first visit to Stonehenge as a young child with your father. Can you share this story with our listeners? Sure. It's, a, it's one of my cherished um, early stories. I was, I was five years old. And uh, my father and I, I can't remember the context of why it was that just the two of us were there, but the two of us drove to uh, Stonehenge. I was living in London at the time. And at that time, Stonehenge was basically just the stones. There was no souvenir shop. There was no snack bar. You could basically just walk right up to and among the stones. And I remember uh, standing in front of these structures holding my dad's hand being um having what i would now describe as a feeling of awe just having a mixture of just being completely bowled over and impressed with um a tinge of fear um almost as if you know i was worried that the people who built the structure were going to come back and catch us somehow invading their space but i think you know i look back on that now as being maybe instrumental in forming my my later interests because i think it was the earliest exposure for me to the the basic fact that the the things that we design and build can have a profound impact on our emotional state so it was it was just a wonderful adventure for me at the time and and also recollecting it over the years since then and uh, recently, I had uh, a chance to uh, take my son, my young son, to Stonehenge. I was really um, avid to have to share that same experience with him and to see the same sort of delight um, and awe on his face. And, and that happened. So it was a great way for me of kind of closing that, that circle in the family. And did it, uh, what kind of emotions did it stir the second time? Obviously, we, you were with your young son, but I'm curious, did did you still approach it with the same sense of awe? Uh, I I did, but but mostly, I mean, the, the surroundings at that time, you know, now are, are very different. It's much more controlled. You can't really 
go very close to the structure. There's a prescribed trail that you walk around. So um, for, for me, most of the emotion came from seeing my son have that experience for the first time, um, which, you know, I think there's a lesson there as well, that, that there's something special about the, the shared experience of, of places like that, that adds a whole different layer of experience and interest. Yeah. Well, you speak about uh, places of awe in your book, and I think we're going to touch upon that um, a little bit later in the conversation, but thank you for sharing um, that beautiful story. Um, You argue that one of the defining characteristics of humanity is the desire to build in order to change our perceptions of the world, influencing our own thoughts and feelings through this means. And you illustrate this through the story of the building of Gobekli Tepi. Tell us about this fascinating structure and what you feel it reveals about our humanity. Sure. I, I, I have had a long-standing interest in Gobekli Tepe, and um, I actually have a colleague, and we have kind of a pact between us that if we ever find a way to to visit the site together, we will. I've not actually seen it. I've only seen pictures and read stories and, and spoken to some of the people involved in excavating the site. My interest in Gobekli Tepe comes from, in part, its age. So it's it's 10 to 12,000 years old, which means that it, it predates uh, cities. It predates all kinds of things that we often think of as being the uh, prosaically i think as being kind of the building blocks of where cities came from that we we settled um to be involved in agriculture and as part of that process of sedentation we needed to build an infrastructure to to uh to live basically to live as an organized group but when you look at the earliest structures like gobekli and you see that all of that happened um before cities and you also recognize that these structures, I mean, to describe them a little bit, they're, they're massive uh, stelae or columns that are that are engraved, carved with all kinds of, of wonderful, sometimes real and sometimes imaginary creatures. And it's very clear that to build something like that, a lot of people would have had to have come together at the site. More people in all great likelihood than would have been living together at that time. So to me, what it means is that it, early in our history, there was a time when we felt it was important enough to build things, not to organize society, not um, to store our stuff, but rather to have some other kind of function. We know that nobody lived there, for example. So the speculation is that these sites are perhaps uh, locations of healing. Maybe sick people went to recover there. Um, I've always had this kind of pet idea that it may have been designed and built in part to um, at a time when we were beginning to try to come to terms with our mortality and to assuage that kind of existential fear that realizing that we don't go on forever, making connections with things that, that are more eternal. I don't know, and I don't think anybody really knows why it's there, but to me it's age and it's scope um is the significant thing in terms of what it tells us about the history of building Mm. yeah i mean in in reading about it in your book it made me also want to go visit the site um so i suspect it it would be um it would also um, impact my own perceptions of the world um which is really you know a lot of your work as a cognitive neuroscientist lies at the intersection of psychology architecture and urban design um you're fascinated by the many ways that the setting of our lives affects how we think and how we feel um and you use the term psychogeography both in the title of your book but also to describe some of your work so what is psychogeography colin well, I have to be a little bit careful about this because that that word um, has some freight. There was actually a, a philosophical movement um, a long time ago that began in France. Um, that I think that was the first use of that term psychogeography. And in the hands of this this group, the psychogeographic movement, so called, the idea was that um, it was possible to um 
to design places, to design buildings and streetscapes in such a way that you could um, influence and um, control populations. And so the psychogeographic movement was as much philosophical as it was political. And the idea was to find ways to break down that attempt to exert control that was coming from what they perceived as higher powers. And so they designed um, exercises that uh, were meant to, I think, in part, illuminate those kinds of connections and also to break them down, where they encouraged people to, they went on walks as groups, encouraged people to do this, where they tried to ignore um, the the ways that the streets were calling out to you to uh, to behave and to go against the grain of of what the setting was trying to tell you to do in such a way as to kind of re reveal that kind of hidden structure. Um, so that's the history. And I guess the way that I use the term is not really all that different because I'm still focusing on the idea that one's surroundings always have an impact on on how we feel and, and what we do. I think that's, that's I, I truly believe that. I think, you know, what's been interesting to me over the years that I've been doing this and talking about it is that as soon as you describe those kinds of influences, people have these aha moments, especially, you know, I've done lots of research where I've taken people for, for walks um, in, in the world in cities and um, measured their bodies, talked to them, um, administered psychological tests of one kind or another. And the uniform, almost universal response that I get from people when I debrief them at the ends of, ends of these experiences was, wow, of course, this is happening to me all the time. And I didn't realize it. And now, thanks to this short exercise, I have a greater awareness of the fact that there's that that connection going on all the time. So all, I think all I'm doing is is trying to find ways to apply uh, formal tools that have been around for a long time in psychology and neuroscience to uh, to a, to a newer kind of context, a new way to understand what cities and buildings are are and what they're for, how they work. Yeah, and I we're going to talk uh, quite a bit about this. I think right after the break, we're going to uh, discuss these experiments that you conduct in cities on many city streets um, that I think try to quantify some of the things that you are talking about um, right now. Uh, but maybe I'd like to just dwell a little bit on, um, you know, the relationship again between ourselves and the built environment. Um, but you dwell at the onset of the book quite a bit on our connection or our desire to be connected to nature which is something that I think most people inherently understand um, and obviously uh, know when they come in contact with landscape. But I was wondering if you could briefly describe to us maybe the scientific reasons for this. And I'm going to press you to say that if you could try to do this in layman's terms, um, that would be amazing. Um, can you just tell us why we're hardwired to connect this way to nature? Sure. I think that um, there are lots of different ways to answer that question, uh, depending on what kind of why you're talking about. So I think, you know, when, when we think about um, uh, trying to explain something like our attraction to nature, um, there's we sometimes we talk about uh, a distinction between ultimate causes and proximate causes. And all that means is that the ultimate cause in this case would be why why does it make sense why is it adaptive for us to be attracted to scenes of nature and it's not really too hard to imagine the kinds of answers that there might be to that question because when we're attracted to things like uh flowers uh foliage um attracted to life vitality then it's hard to imagine any circumstances where that's not going to be um a good a good thing it's not going to be something that the chances are it's going to promote survival. Um, the uh, the other kinds of questions having to do with proximate causes are, you know, what are the mechanisms? What what is it about scenes of nature that we find so attractive? And I think truthfully, we know less about that. There's there's um, a good deal of evidence that exposure to nature is good for us in a number of quite specific ways, um, ranging from um, impacts on things like blood pressure, um, uh, stressful arousal levels, 
um, to other things like even patterns of thought. Uh, there's There are nice experiments that show that when you take a walk through a natural setting, the way that you pay attention to the world shifts in a remarkably short period of time. A lot of the, the research that's done in this area involves taking people into natural settings or even showing them simulations of natural settings for periods as short as maybe 10 minutes. And even after a 10-minute period of immersion in nature, there is an easily measurable effect on, on people's bodies. So I think it's, um, I mean, I could I could go on and on with the evidence, but I think, you know, the, the one other thing that I think that I'll say is that in terms of the brain areas themselves that are involved, um, there is some, some really tantalizing evidence that points to the involvement of a particular part of the brain called the parahippocampal place area. Um, which we know is an area that seems to have a special role in recognizing and remembering places. And we also know that it really gets jazzed up, to use the scientific terminology, to um, to scenes of nature. And the other thing that's, uh, that's interesting about this area is that it also has uh, a remarkably rich quantity of receptors for um, endogenous opiates, that is the, the kinds of neurotransmitter systems that are that are involved in in reward pathways and other contexts. So it takes a little bit of arm waving to connect all the dots among all of these different things, but it's not completely implausible to suppose that our attraction to nature might be driven by the same kinds of mechanisms that that draw us to other kinds of uh, things that motivate us, like food and sex. The same kinds of pathways seem to be, or at least the same kinds of neurotransmitter systems seem to have a role in attraction to nature. So ultimately, yes, it's good for us. And approximately, we're drawn perhaps to nature for the same kinds of reasons that we're drawn to other motivators of human life. You know, I think we could probably um, have an entire episode dedicated to just this question. And I find it really fascinating. Um because it also goes, as you suggested, I mean, it has the power to impact our moods and our ability to think. But there was an example that you cited in the book of research produced by Francine Quo and William Sullivan that stayed with me because their work um, was specifically focused on landscape and inner city neighborhoods. Could you just uh, tell us what their work revealed in the ways in which um, landscape might actually be even influencing the amount of crime that takes place in the city. Um, I don't know if I'm accurately describing the evidence, but could you just share that one example with us? Sure. Yeah, I think I think that the early pioneering work of of Quan Sullivan uh, was conducted, as I remember it, in uh, experiments in which they they compared um, observations in. Um, small common areas in in medium density housing some of which had they they were quite similar except that some of them had good landscape architecture and others were kind of bleak entirely concrete and they found measurable differences in things like the ways that people treat treated one another thought about one another and and yes on a broader scale if you look at relationships between um, the amount of, of vegetation in different parts of a city and crime rates, you find correlations. And, you know, this is a little bit of a tangent, but when when people make these findings, there's often this, this obvious counter-argument that's raised, which we all know, and that is that the more affluent areas of a city tend to be the ones that have better landscape architecture. But statistically, there are ways to kind of co-vary that out, it's, as it's called. So even if you discount the impact of those kinds of variables, you still find uh, differences in in crime rates. So yeah, there there's been uh, not just crime. There there's a a really interesting study that was um, conducted. The site was the city of Toronto, and uh, the the experiment consisted of again of mapping tree cover for the city and then correlating that with a series of health variables. And the, the the main finding was that there was a relationship between how much tree cover there was in a neighborhood and the incidence of things like cardiac disease, metabolic disorders like diabetes, and even, you know, more qualitatively just asking people questions about how healthy they thought they were. It turns out 
that one of the best ways to find out how healthy you are, maybe this is not surprising, is to simply ask. And most people have a pretty good sense of their own state of health. And so all of these things were strongly correlated with, with tree cover. So at every level from, you know, the way, the way that we think and feel about ourselves to the way that we think and feel about other people, even to physical health variables, um, there is this impact, this, this evidence for a profound impact of, of nature. One of the very first studies that was done in this area involved uh, measurements of uh, pain and recovery in a small group of hospital patients, some of whom had a view of nature from the window of their room and others of whom didn't. And again, there was a measurable difference in terms of the amount of pain relief that those two samples of patients needed to how quickly they were discharged from the hospital. So nature is nature is huge. And uh, uh, and as we all know, I think, well, I think things are changing now. But um, I think for the longest time, we've just basically considered landscape architecture in cities to be uh, nothing more than maybe an aesthetic, just an aesthetic add on that. Sure, it's nice to have things look pretty, but, you know, more important is, is the water and electricity and garbage removal and everything else. But it turns out that it's much more fundamental than that. If people don't have exposure to that in cities, then they, they cannot thrive. Well, that is music to my ears. <laughs> um, and oftentimes I think the scientists can quantify what, let's say, the architects or sometimes the artists have a difficult time quantifying, you know, within aesthetic disciplines. But I hear in your answer that urban design could be much more than... Um, than the design of, of course, beautiful, um, meaningful uh, spaces and places, but could maybe even be a matter of public health. Um, so maybe more of us should be working together um, to advocate for the kinds of spaces that you're describing, because um, I do think that they have the power to impact people's lives. And I think you, through your work, has um, shown some evidence of that, at least some scientific or quantifiable evidence. Um, yeah. I, I agree completely. I mean, I, I think that that as, um, and this is a science that now seems to be progressing quite rapidly. And as, as the evidence piles up for the impact of our surroundings on our, our mental health and even our physical health, um, I, I agree. I think there, that, that um, architects and designers have an absolute responsibility to be mindful of that, um, to um to to take heed of the evidence that that accrues and to recognize that that building good things building good buildings and streetscapes and cities um uh is 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 essential to our, our thriving as human beings and maybe even more than architects and um which of course they should um i think also city governments I think city governments play a huge role um in in, in assisting uh you know, architects with the development of, you know, city plans um, at scales that individual architects can't really operate in, right? So oh. I, I think, I think uh, politicians, legislation, um, you know, so, so, so many individuals go into the building of cities, but I think working alongside, you know, scientists, right? Because you're using some of the latest technologies, right? To kind of, uh, you know, hardwire people in these experiments to really kind of quantify the brain activity. So it isn't, um, I think that when we're in a beautiful place, we don't need to be told that we're in a beautiful place. You know, most people recognize it and their emotions are moved by it. But I think somehow from your perspective, you're able to quantify that um, through your experiments, which I think make, um, you know, give give credence, I guess, to the argument um, that it is beyond aesthetics. In fact, uh, it is about our well-being. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're right, and that's 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 a completely valid point. That it's not it's not all on the heads, of course, of the the architects and the the designers. That there has to be um, a, a awareness uh, at government levels to in, influence policy, and also developers. I mean, that's that's another thing. Is that you know, sadly or not, at the end of the day, to make things happen. Um, there has to be demonstrations that there's an influence on the bottom line. So in in public health terms, that's not a hard argument to make. 
um, for developers. I think the argument to be made is that if you're designing and or, or funding the design of properties that are more psychologically sustainable, then in the end, you're 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 building properties that are going to have more valuable, that be more valuable assets. So, for mm-hmm. example, if you're designing up a residence or an office building um, where the people who work or live there are going to be um, healthier, then the argument is that that's going to be worth more. Yeah, it's sad that it often has to come down to dollars and cents, but I mean, sad or not, that's the way things often get done, right? So, yeah, well, it's I guess an ability to quantify. Um, things yeah. that are not always quantified, um, I think is is a really good point. Um, and maybe this would be a good time to take a quick break. Um, and But when we return, we're going to continue our conversation with Colin Ellard and his work with the Urban Realities Lab at the University of Waterloo. Uh, we're going to talk about the experiments he's conducting in cities and the evidence that he can share with us about the ways in which we shape our cities and how they influence the quality of our Uh, lives, and by extension, our well-being. So do not miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod, examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with cognitive neuroscientist Colin Ellard. Uh, just before the break, we were beginning to discuss the relationships between the built environment and its influences on our psychological well being. Uh, but now I'd like to turn more specifically to the work that you've been doing um, through your urban realities lab at the University of Waterloo, where you lead experiments that measure people's psychological responses to the built environment. And uh, Colin, as I understand it, much of this work takes place along city streets. So tell us, how do these experiments work? And what lessons have you learned that you think can influence the ways in which we design our cities? The, um, the, the, the field experiments that we do, um, um, are in, in many ways, they're, they're remarkably simple. I mean, we just, we find a way of recruiting, uh, s- samples of, of ordinary people, um, by various means, most often in conjunction with some kind of um exhibition at a museum perhaps or some kind of an event so we we did this the beginnings of this was that we we had an an ongoing relationship with something that ran um beginning i think in 2011 called the bmw guggenheim laboratory which was a wonderful um traveling um urbanist show where we set up in different cities and and did all kinds of you know had films and lectures and discussions and experiments and so we basically just gathered groups of people together um we would uh try to develop a route that we thought held a number of interesting contrasts one kind or another you know one of which we've already talked about which was the the presence of of like good landscape architecture or not uh but other things as well you know one of the things that we were really interested in um, and this relates to uh, the messages that you referred to. We were interested in uh, what what goes by a number of names, but we we were calling it entropy, street entropy, and all that really means is just um, the the amount of information that was present on the street, the amount of of variability, or or to put it in a psychological way, the, the amount of interest that a street might hold, the number of different things that were going on. The number of different sites, the number of different openings in the street. Um, so we'd set up a route. We tried to, as much as we could, um, and we still do this, uh, wire people up, which sounds a little bit sinister, but um, all I mean is that there are some some really useful and not at all invasive sensors that you can attach to people's bodies. Um, in most cases, uh, not much more than something like a Fitbit, but not a Fitbit, um, but a design of a device that can be worn on the wrist or the hand that can tell us things about people's heart rate. Uh, there, uh, we use a measure called skin conductance, which just really relates to the state of your sweat glands, because we know that your level of physiological arousal has consequences for sweat glands. We measure one, we can tell things about the other. Um, And we also um, have uh, developed some some software that just runs on smartphones that people carry in their hands and they're triggered to answer questions about their surroundings at prescribed times during during the walk. And in some cases, we've had people just wear a very simple headband that measures some, some quite basic brainwave data. So it's not... It's not very sophisticated. It's just a couple of sites, but it gives us a rough and ready in, in indication of what is happening in your brain as you are in different places on the street. 
And then uh, we take people I, for I guess, uh, sorry to interrupt, Colin, but I guess you're trying to use these simple sure. devices. So it's also not very obtrusive, right? So you don't feel like you're wearing something and then that might distract you. Or, or is it just because yeah. this is what's readily available? Well, you can you can certainly get um, equipment that's that's a little bit more involved that, you know, caps that people can wear on their heads with multiple uh, recording sites. One reason we didn't use that is the pragmatic one that we just didn't have it at the time we were doing these studies. But we, you know, we talked about it, about the fact that, you know, there's also the factor of people feeling a little bit odd when you're walking down a public street and you're, you're wired up. Um, like, I don't know what, um, people, like some sort of robot, (laughs) even with the, even with the stuff that we were using, we'd have, you know, um, uh, strangers shouting at, participants and you know we'd have a group of 10 people standing at a, a, a street corner answering questions on their smartphones and somebody would run by and say stop staring at your phones and why don't you pay attention to your surroundings which is you know hugely ironic because that's exactly what we were trying to promote um but yeah really really simple stuff uh the the data lobe was manageable it was manageable enough and this was important to us that when we when we brought participants back to mission control, wherever that was at the conclusion of the hour's walk, we were able to very quickly um, put together some visualizations of what had happened during the walk. So we would have these fabulous debrief sessions that often went on much longer than the experiments. It was hard to get people to leave these experiments because they were so fascinated and wanted to talk more about the experiences that they'd had during, during the walk. Um, so to get to get that online and put together so quickly, um, it had to be fairly stripped down. Um, and so that's what we did. And we've run run these kinds of experiments now in uh, a number of different cities, uh, Toronto and Vancouver in Canada, New York City, which is where it began, Berlin, um, Mumbai. Um, I think that might be it. And and in terms of the findings, the, the the one thing that has absolutely stood out to us in every case is the importance of the design of street facades. And this is not, you know, com- completely novel information because there's been a long history of, of simple observational studies of, of, you know, think of the work of the urbanist Jan Gell, for example, who was all over this a long time ago and argued correctly that you can pick the stuff up by just watching people, which you can. You can just watch where people stop on the street. You can watch how quickly they walk, and you can see a lot of this. We felt as though what we were adding was just a window inside the individual person by these physiological measures, and also by asking people questions about about their experiences, both en route and after the experience was over. Yeah, but I think it's a very um, important observation. You know, sometimes the simplest observations are, in fact, the most profound, right? So I think what you said is, uh, in the book at least, is, you know, these active uh, street fronts, which are oftentimes have shops or, you know, restaurants, or they might have displays, they they encourage us to continue to walk, they make us interested in stopping, and they make us interested in, you know, speaking with people, uh, watching people, um, as opposed to what happens to us when we have to walk across very long stretches of blank walls in the city, right? Which happens with um, maybe certain building types. You know, I'm thinking about Miami, but, you know, large big box retails or, you know, uh, a number of like uh, sports facilities or convention halls, which have just enormous lengths of blank walls, which actually do not have to be that way. They can be wrapped in a liner of retail, for instance. And so um, I think while it it's a seemingly straightforward and simple observation. I think what it does is it offers, again, it quantifies what we as architects, many architects know, <laughs> um, but I think you're able to quantify through, you know, data, like the data that you just described. Um, so I, yeah, I think it, yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think that it's critical to do that. And especially in a world where, you know, you just gave lots of examples where we're seeing those same kinds of mistakes being made over and over again. And, um, and, and again, just as you said, it's not it's not necessarily very elaborate or hugely expensive to fix those things, to build differently. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think you're right that the, the 
you you can't emphasize that that simple message too many times. Clearly, if it's if it still hasn't had enough impact, then there's there's still a way to go. So, really, at the I guess at the heart of your studies lies the interest in man's relationship or woman's relationship <laughs> or humanity's relationship to place. Um, so, how would you say that place differs from simply space? Oh well, I think um, what an interesting question. I think that um, uh, place has everything to do with the um, the 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 psychological responses that we might make to our surroundings, which can be um tangential to or maybe even divorced from space when i think of space i think of it as being more of you know physicality more a, a mathematical uh, set of coordinates on which a framework that we put things on and i think that that has in lots of cases very little relationship to um our experience of places um, one simple example, we're, we're becoming in my lab right now really interested in time and our experience, for example, of the passage of time as we move through uh, a city. And everybody knows this, that if you, if you, um, if you walk through a, a barren, empty streetscape of the kind that you were just describing, time just plods along so slowly. And if you walk through an area that has much more interest, then um the the time just disappears the time just goes so quickly so in terms of physics and space and time that you know that has nothing to do with the physics it has to do with the the experience of of place so i think that's the key difference hmm. i love that um reading of it uh, i've asked that question to a couple of people and they've given me a kind of slightly different response but i, I love that take on it um because in your book actually you talk about certain types of places, right? And I was wondering if in maybe a sentence or two, um, you could describe, uh, let's say, places of anxiety. You speak about places of anxiety. You speak about places of awe. We also speak about places of lust. So can you share with our listeners, maybe in a few uh, sentences, what you mean by this? Um, sure. I, I think what I was trying to get at in the book when I used those kinds of, of references um, what was the fact that there are um, design features that might be more likely to elicit any of those kinds of of emotional states. So anxiety is interesting because um, I think maybe a little bit more than, well, maybe not, but um, anxiety is often uh, personal. So where a space that makes me anxious might be based on my history with that with that space um and there's a lot of interest in um in those kinds of relationships but i think there are also some very basic quantities of places that are more likely to elicit certain kinds of emotions so when i think of anxiety at urban scale the the first thing that jumps into my mind is is where people might have concerns about crime for example and there's there's a fairly reliable and, and not all that obscure relationship between um, the design of street scaled spaces and anxiety, fear of crime, basically. And it has to do with obvious things like lighting, um, access to escape routes, um, opportunities for no good nicks to be hiding to pounce on you. Um, so when you're when you're walking through one of these settings, um, uh say say walking down a, a, a narrow street a narrow poorly lit street late at night then of course you're very likely to feel feel some anxiety and it has to do with the the setting as much as it has to do with your personal experience um as far as uh, uh places of awe um i i can identify uh my first dramatic experience with a place that elicited awe which was my first visit to uh, St. Peter's Basilica in, in Italy. And, uh, and I, re I remember as if it was yesterday, that feeling um, of walking into that just huge vaulted chamber of space and being overwhelmed both by its size and by uh, its content, just, you know, dripping with, with ornate and beautiful pieces of art. 
that I'd heard about and seen images of. And so suddenly here, here I was surrounded by all of this stuff. And since that experience, we've, we've actually done some research in my lab looking at um, the, the different ways in which different kinds of architectural settings can elicit feelings of awe. And those two things, it turns out, are uh, two of the hallmarks of architectural settings or any kind of setting built or otherwise that elicits those feelings. One is is grandness I and mean, just sheer dimensionality, just hugeness of a space. And the other um, has more to do with your impressions of, um, let's just call it the the human effort that might have been involved in creating that space. So when I'm in the basilica or a space like that, then I'm I'm overwhelmed both by its size and also by the clear evidence that a lot of people spent a lot of time making this place look as as beautiful as it as it did. Um, as far as places of uh, lust, I think I used the 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 word lust in the in the book just to you know kind of because who wouldn't go to the chapter entitled "Places of Lust" first, right? We're all. <laughs> Um, but what I was trying to get at, I mean, there there are some some interesting examples of people having lustful relationships with with spaces. There are the odd stories, for example. There's uh, the, the the woman who married the Eiffel Tower, um, and there are a few cases of people who, and I, I think maybe the Berlin Wall was another case where somebody actually had a uh, a ceremony to to be quote unquote legally married to this this structure. That's that's kind of odd. But what I what I was referring to more was was the fact that of course we have we can develop affections for spaces. And to some extent that can be something that's designed in, I think. For example, we know that people are attracted to uh curvature. So if you have a space that has nice graceful curves that's more likely to be attractive to people but i think like anxiety um what might make you lustful or not lustful necessarily but but like a place would have as much to do with your history with with that that place um i have a a long-standing interest this this could turn into a long tangent so feel free to just wave at me to, when you want me to stop. But I've got a long-standing interest in people's relationships with their residences, especially my relationship with my residence. And to keep the story as short as I can, the house that I'm living in now, which is the longest that I've ever lived in a house, you know, as an academic, I've moved a lot. I've lived in 19 different homes in my life. Um, here's where I've been the longest. And when I was lucky enough to be able to buy this house, I walked in and after basically a minute, I told the realtor, I said, this is the house that I need to buy, whatever it takes. And uh, and I did. And then sometime not that long after that, I started, I call it a pilgrimage, um, a succession of visits through all of the houses that I've ever lived in, beginning with my first two homes, which were in London. And there I discovered that the home that I lived in from the age of two to seven um, has basically the same layout as my current home. In, you know, even there were renovations to that house, there are renovations to this house, and even the renovations were similar. So the uh, the epiphany for me was that probably the reason why I stepped in and said, this is my place, I need to buy it, was the resonance with that that early and very happy home of mine. And in England. So I, you know, there's all, there's all kinds of, there are all kinds of considerations that go into uh, thinking about what might make a place, a place of affection, happiness, lust for a person. I think in that case, probably most of them are personal rather than design, but I think the good design helps. And I don't, uh, I don't completely, I don't completely pretend to understand this still. I mean, in that one particular case, I think that I, I have a glimmering of an idea, but I think again, everybody knows that feeling. Um, um, call it atmosphere when when you walk into a, a setting and you have that immediate feeling of ease and comfort, and you try to figure out why that is. You know, is it the smell? Is it you know the flooring? What are, what are the features that are producing this? And I think we don't know. I know that there there are people now in my field who are 
working hard to, and we've done a bit of this work too, to try to understand uh, what architectural atmosphere is, where it comes from, um, and how it, how it works. But it's a it's a thorny, hard, hard problem. Well, you know, you you said so much in that answer, and it just makes me think about um, one of the uh, oldest texts that we have on on um, the study of or the writing about cities and architectures by Vitruvius, and in there he writes about these three maxims. Right, he talks about utility, commodity, but then he ends in the word delight. And I think what you're talking about is goes beyond just meeting the technical requirements of, let's say, buildings or cities or getting people to move around from one place to an- another. I think you're talking about that third category about delight, you know, um, the care taken to design something, you know, the beauty in which it's, um, you know, it's detailed or uh, the emotion in which it stirs. And and maybe we need more of this. We need to discuss more of this. Um, I think certainly in schools of architecture, because maybe if we loved our buildings more, we would care for them more. <laughs> and if we loved our cities more, we would we would do a better job being stewards for the next generation. So uh, I think uh, what you have to say is, um, I think, particularly important and, it, you know, can go back um, to the beginnings of the writings on architecture. So thank you for that. Um, so we're, we're coming to the end of the episode, Colin. And uh, I ask all my guests um, the sort of same question, which is, what is your favorite city and why? So, Colin, I'm curious to hear your answer to this question. I I knew something like this was coming, and it's always it's always <laughs> question me cringe a little bit. But thank you for not asking me which which city I dislike the most because sometimes I get that too, and that's that's a hard one to be diplomatic about. the The problem with answering a question like that is that I I think in almost every city that I visited or lived in, there there are things that I like. So the um. So it's it's less about a city in its entirety and more about regions of a city, I suppose, is one way to cop out of an answer. But the honest answer I would have to say is that my favorite city is London. And again, it's it's that interesting mix for me of the personal and the professional. Um, I I adore some, not all, but I adore some of the, uh, the architecture of London. Um, it's a fascinating, dynamic, um, richly complicated city. But it's also the city of my origins. So I have, you know, for the longest time as an immigrant to Canada, I felt as though I didn't have a home. And when I went back to the UK for the first time as an adult, I thought, of course I do. It's here. Mm -hmm. Um, So my favorite city. Yeah, well, I think that's a, that's an answer that has resonated with many, and I've enjoyed hearing um, your perspective on things. Thank you, Colin, so much for your work as an author or a scientist and an educator, and for revealing the critical connections between our psychological well-being and the design of the spaces and the cities that we inhabit. Um, next week, I'm going to be joined by James Kunstler, an American writer and social critic, He has spent his career writing about the energy crisis and his views on the many converging catastrophes of our age. Do not miss what is sure to be a provocative conversation and listen to all previous episodes on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you again, Colin. It was a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 